Welcome to the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biotacast.org, all one word. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with a gentleman who I don't think I've spoken to for at least five years. It could be even longer. It could be about seven years, unless probably we were on one of those ISIL calls together. <laughs> Sometime relatively more recently than the International uh, Society of Artificial Life Conference, uh, A-Life Conference that I think I attended in 2012 in Michigan. I think that's when I met you. I'm not sure if we've had a recorded conversation since then. Tim Taylor, how are you? Hello, Tom. Um, I'm doing very well, thanks. Yes, it, it probably was uh, in Michigan when I... Uh, saw, I think that's the only time we've met in person. Um, it's been a while. But anyway, it's good to talk to you again. Yes. And it's also very good. It's great that you're doing these Biota podcasts again. I'm very glad to, to see that you've been able to have the time to get these started up again. Well, I think it's more the necessity. I think the field is at a point currently where there needs to be something like the Biota podcast again, if nothing more, to reach out to folks such as Anton, who are coming new to this field and just wondering what the state of it is and how they can contribute and a variety of other questions, which I had actually, over the period of time the Biota podcast was down, I would get maybe an email every three months from folks usually in some form of research science typically um occasionally outside of that just saying you know love the podcast what's happening now so <laughs> this is the void right. i'm trying to fill now and also it's a great opportunity to catch up with folks such as yourself so right great great yes and i know you had a, a number of things uh possible topics that we could talk about today um one thing to add to the list is this uh topic of wikipedia that i know you you were talking with anton about in the last couple of podcasts um that's really spurred me into action because for a long time i've <laughs> i've had this nagging feeling in the back of my mind that uh the Many of the artificial life related pages on Wikipedia are pretty bad. They're they're not comprehensive. They a lot of them omit some of the important information you would expect to see there. Some of the information is either outdated or not particularly relevant. So there's certainly a need of um some care and attention for these Wikipedia pages. And Listening to the last couple of podcasts and the the problems you've experienced with uh, with your noble ape um, pages, um, etc., has spurred me into action. So I'm I'm not sure if you've seen my tweet recently. I last week at some point I I tweeted that um, I had an idea at the upcoming A Life conference in Newcastle in the UK this year to organise a wiki a wikithon to get people together so um in one room the a life conference is a good opportunity so there'll be lots of a life enthusiasts there and to spend a few hours collectively working on improving the content of of current a life pages um and to think about what's there what's missing whether there should be new pages up there what uh, maybe if there's a, if things should be reorganised, so all of that. But it's a very new thing to me. I, I don't have any experience really of uh, of working with Wikipedia, and the sense in the little time I've spent looking at it, I've um, got the same impression as uh, 
as it seems like you've found in your dealings with Wikipedia, it's um, it's quite hard for an outsider to get into it. There are all these rules about what you can and can't do and what you should and shouldn't do. So what my plan is, and I'm making some progress in this, I've, I actually had quite a few responses to the, the tweet I sent out last week. Um, and a friend of mine here in Edinburgh, who's at Edinburgh University, uh, has actually been involved in organizing a, a wikithon related to Ada Lovelace. I think it was a, an Ada Lovelace Day event where they had a wikithon to uh, work on pages of uh, of women working in science. So I, by all accounts, I didn't go to that, but um, by all accounts, it was very successful. So he's giving me some uh, tips and also introducing me to people who are more in the inner circle, as it were, of Wikipedians. So uh, he's introduced me to a guy, I've not met him yet, um, who's the Wikipedian in residence for Edinburgh University. And through him, he has given me some contact details of people in Newcastle um, associated with with Wikipedia. So I think my feeling is that it's it's one of these things where it's best to start with um, knowing some insiders basically some people who know the the politics and how everything works and to take it from there Here's so that's the advice i will give you sure. from my experience what has happened to me in the past week two weeks let me say where we are currently okay the uh, article as you've noted maybe not explicitly but let me say it i've experienced over the past two years what can happen when a wealthy individual pays people to do things and what i've experienced indicates to me that there are people within wikipedia in fact you've kind of indicated that in what you've said that um, can be paid to do things i'm not clear whether my situation relates to a paid wikipedian or whether it relates to just uh, an overzealous wikipedia editor but what has happened in the past week with regards to the artificial life organizations article was that it has been deleted. Once an article is deleted, the process of getting it back is far more difficult than protecting it through the deletion process. But in my case, the deletion process occurred very rapidly and without any reference to the links that uh, another Wikipedia person had provided, which makes me think that it, it has a little bit of tarnish to it associated with how it was done. My concern through this is the Artificial Life Conference is in August this year, right? So That's right, yeah, in, end of July. In the August, next yeah. however many months up until then, the potential for these deletion flags to go through every possible article in Artificial Life, they've already removed um, maybe five additional projects in addition to mine. The ability for this thing to carry on is far more rapid. You, you may end up with a situation where you just have a deleted artificial life article in august that you then have to do a wide variety of really curious processes to reinstate in my case the person who posted the links who wasn't part of the deletion process represented me after the fact which was an amazing stroke of luck it was beyond blind luck really here they Mm -hmm. have taken tom barbelay which is the article that was written by listeners to this podcast Um, many years ago. You can actually go back and listen to the audio. I talked to two of them, one of them who explicitly identified, I think his name was Jay Lemon, who identified himself as the original authors of the Artificial Life pages back in 
2006-2007. So a lot of the curious okay. stuff that you talked about. Another gentleman who also appeared on an early Biot podcast who I don't think he told me that he had worked on some of the pages, but I didn't. It's not public. Anyway, this person who, for whatever reason, thankfully represented me in this circumstance and is responsible for a wide variety of, I think I've already talked about in this podcast, she seems connected, not directly, but like two degrees of separation away from my mother's writing which is a very curious link to have in these circumstances. But obviously, she probably was checking for the name Barbelay being flagged or deleted or added, because obviously she's written about one. There were seven writers. My mother was one of them. She wrote, the person who who assisted with stopping the situation on Wikipedia, wrote one of the articles on one of the writers. So anyway, she is now acting as conservator. I think that would probably be the right term. For Tom Barbelay, my name, and the thing that was written about me, and also mm-hmm. Noble Ape. The other two pages that I had, one on some writing that I did in 1993, which again, podcast listeners wrote a Wikipedia article about, and the other on ApeScript, which ironically I'm working currently to, to you know, do additional things with. But, you know, in the scheme of violent deletions, yeah, I'm... Yeah. So anyway, this, this person yeah. is taking these two articles and combining it into one article, which will probably just be my name by the looks of things, and then Noble Ape will link there. However, through the period of time, this wealthy individual has the ability to do whatever they like with Noble Ape through this period of time as the Wikipedia entry, and I'm waiting to see that happen. We, as the artificial life community, you and I, particularly because of our connections with ISIL, should have no part in any rewriting of any Wikipedia article. And as we've talked about here in the public, although they're unlikely to get to a podcast recording, we are connected with the artificial life community sufficient that we should have no part of any art, any construction of articles around this. When they do a Wikithon associated with Ada Lovelace and computer science articles around that, there are at least two, if not many, more degrees of separation between them and the content. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia now, if looked at critically, if you get the situation of a spotlight, I've never gone and touched any of these articles on this stuff associated with Noble Ape, what have you. It's specifically, because as soon as you start doing that, then immediately deletion is the response for these people, these editors on Wikipedia. So... My view is what we should do is we should train people how to use Wikipedia and how mm-hmm. to get a, uh, but not. This notion of a wikithon comes from a decade ago. These days, with regards to critical Wikipedia viewing, a wikithon is exactly the kinds of um, uh, things that they can track. They're very good at tracking critical Wikipedia editors, are very good at tracking group edits around a specific time they go back to IP addresses. There's a wide variety of ways this kind of stuff will be flagged. What we need here is what we had historically. Listeners that have who listen to this thing, maybe, but aren't in any way connected with ISIL, probably aren't connected with you or me or Biota or any of this other stuff, who independently think there should be a Wikipedia page here. They need to be trained in the ways of Wiki, which is, from my perspective, probably six months worth of stuff, including... It's like a street, it's got elements of both being a street gang and also curious elements of the Russian army and the kind of commissar class within the Russian army, if you read about that. (laughs) It seems to be the building model of Wikipedia here. What is at stake here is the 
ability for people. And this I wanted to talk to you about with regards to alife.org. Alife.org mm-hmm. could be, and I would argue possibly should be, the hub for community maintained information on artificial life to remove the need for articles on Wikipedia. The need for articles on Wikipedia currently, uh, because when people search for this field, they it's almost impossible to find any meaningful information about this field, except for the small number of references that you have on alife.org. What mm-hmm. I think would be a better thing for your time in August would be to create a wiki on alife.org or something similar to a wiki on alife.org that the community could maintain to welcome new folk in and get them the information that they need independent of all this Wikipedia stuff. So my views have mm-hmm. changed in the past week, having experienced what I've experienced. It's a bit like um, a circumstance where you have someone lobbing off limbs and then they've stopped lobbing off limbs. I love Monty Python. <laughs> you, I feel that way. I feel we've already lost limbs here. We're already in a situation where we've sustained damage that will take time to recover from. And if we, in the next four months, now this could be, as I mentioned earlier, a paid-for person who is being directed to do specific damage towards me, and unfortunately, artificial life organisations and whatever comes after that might relate to that. I don't know. I've experienced Mm. enough stuff over the past two years to say that that is a good possibility. However, the overzealousness of these Wikipedia uh, admins and editors is pretty extreme. They are people, from what I've been able to just determine, who are typically in their early to mid-twenties. They come from the Reddit culture. They have an overwhelming view that, uh, and this is the real problem with our community, we need to be getting articles in the New York Times if we want to maintain ourselves on Wikipedia. They have the overwhelming view that these kind of media articles, the New York Times, The Guardian probably, these kind of places, which I had with regards to my work, I need to add as well. They just didn't look at these links when they did the deletion. Okay. These are the kinds of things that will maintain the field of artificial life on Wikipedia. The notion of truth and um, fact, as I was taught in my second year of philosophy, these 20-something folk, not disparaging people in their 20s, but I'm just saying these are people that come through the Reddit culture. They don't have a sense of what truth and fact means in any philosophical sense. And they will put more weighting on a New York Times article and these kind of things than they will do with any internally generated or even academically referenced papers. So Mm -hmm. my deletion specifically related to the fact that they didn't click on a couple, well, more than that perhaps, but I had a couple of links that were actually in broader popular you know, writing, media writing. They love that kind of stuff because it means, you know, third-party notable reference. This is what they're looking for. So, Mm -hmm. for example, Larry Yeager's work, uh, Avida, all the the projects that we think of associated with this community have weaknesses in this area specifically. So I think it would twofold, if I can give you any advice. We need Uh a community wiki on alife.org or a community set of links on alife.org that are probably maintained annually to keep them fresh, where people can get the information which historically has only been available on Wikipedia. We need to Mm -hmm. remove that power from Wikipedia. But secondly, we also need to think about, as a community, the skills and resources that we need to have in dealing with Wikipedia. The fact is, you note that Edinburgh University has a Wikipedian in residence. In a Mm -hmm. sense, that Edinburgh University, and obviously Newcastle, a bunch of other places, realise that having someone who's been jumped into the street gang 
that recites all these three, four-letter acronym gobbledygook things <laughs> is, is a benefit. And I think yeah. we as a community need to acknowledge that as well. But we need to be very careful at how we select them, particularly if you look at the critical way that Wikipedia um, is used. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm certainly very wary of Wikipedia in light of what's what you have experienced in recent weeks. And, and you raised with uh, Charles Afria and me this... Uh, the artificial life organizations page was flagged for deletion and i was i was amazed that the next day it had actually been deleted how how quickly <laughs> that happened so i i guess i've got two responses to to what you've said um one is i absolutely agree that um isol should have a lot more uh, introductory level information about artificial life available and and curated by themselves hosted on their own servers um, and not subject to the, the whim of some uh, anonymous Wikipedia um, editor um, who may decide to delete it at any point. In fact, we're actually moving in that direction. One of the problems with the current alife.org website is that it was written by me uh, in 2012 because the the website before then was very bare bones, just a few links to uh, the, what was it, the the boards, the articles of association. There, there was almost nothing on it. So I designed that page um, to be, I didn't have a great deal of time on, for ongoing maintenance of it. So I, I designed it to be as uh, low maintenance as possible. And it basically pulls in a lot of information, uh, RSS feeds and uh, Twitter uh, accounts and the Artificial Life Journal table of contents and all of that. So basically, the only thing I have to do to it on an ongoing basis is to to input information about new conferences coming up and occasional news stories from this society. So in terms of its remit, it's been very it's been very successful indeed, and it's uh, what when it's now seven years after I'd launched that site, and and I maintain it with very little effort. But uh, it was written in Drupal because at the time I um, felt that Drupal uh, was a bit more flexibility than WordPress, uh, a bit more flexible than WordPress in um, well the the back end of it and allowing. Um, various setting up various rules and um data structures and all of that kind of stuff probably i mean to some extent i just wanted to learn drupal so it was a, an excuse to do that one problem with that is that um it's much harder to find other people um to act as uh editors of the website who know about drupal than who know about wordpress and that's actually has been quite a a um a significant reason why the website hasn't been developed in the last few years because I've not had time to do much on it and I've not been able to find anyone else who is A, interested in artificial life and B, uh, knows their way around Drupal and C, has the time <laughs> to commit. So it's all three things. Uh, and I've, I've found plenty of people who have one or two of those things, but um, uh, in terms of getting someone who who will actually in practice sit down and implement a whole load of new stuff has been a bit more difficult. So the news is, and uh, this is just in the last few days, actually, Emily Dolson, um, I don't know if you know her, she's 
Yeah, yeah. She recently finished her PhD and has started a, a postdoc position, and she got in touch with me last week to say that now she's settled down in her new position, she feels comfortable um, to take on the role of uh, alife.org webmaster. Last year, she had a go at converting. There, there are various automatic tools that will convert a Drupal site to a WordPress site, and she played around with that. And it actually worked pretty well. I think. I mean, I think she had to do a fair amount manually, but she did a really good job of it. So there is a WordPress version of the alife.org website, and so the plan is uh, when she takes over, which will be any time now. We're going to a move the hosting of the site from my servers to a dedicated WordPress server. She's going to. Can I, can I, I just stop you there? I mean, I have concerns associated with that. Okay. Here, here are my concerns. Right. What we need is a dedicated server that runs WordPress that we can put something like a wiki on that we can start adding stuff to. You need a dedicated server which can run a variety of different things. The fact that it was Drupal, and my view is that if you move it to a, a WordPress service. The notion of doing wikis and these kind of things, well, you could do it within that, is sufficiently limited and you fall into the same problem that you, you will not find people that will know WordPress wiki, you know, component within this. Yes. So yeah, yeah. Is that what, what you probably need is hosting which on a, a server that will enable WordPress, you know, Wikimedia, sure. a variety of, of different tapestries of things. I, I think the service we're going for allows that. So it's not exclusively WordPress. So at the moment, it's it's hosted on my server. So I have a Linode server, which is so it is basically my own Linode um, configuration. So I, I run a load of things on that and uh, including web server and email server um yeah so it's running on that that's obviously the most flexible solution but again it comes down to a question of who else in the community um has the time to it's it's a, a balance between having something that's quick and doesn't take much maintenance let and having a question that i wanted to ask anyway through this conversation when um, i met i met um Anton yesterday, I went up to Berkeley, although the weather was horrible, it was wonderful to meet Anton. We spent about two hours, maybe two and a half hours together just talking about a variety of topics. One of the questions he raised is, there are two artificial life conferences. There's the, as you know, because you maintain the conference information on alife.org. And there's also the Gecko conference. My view is that okay. when you have shared community resources that actually are outside should be, I think, in some regard, outside the remit of just ISIL. It would be wise, in some regard, perhaps, to think of this as being a potential starting point to just say to these other... I mean, IEEE and Gecko are well more funded and staffed than ISIL is, in some regard. And this Absolutely. is a shared community resource. So rather than just taking the burden onto the... Uh, I don't want to use the term bespoke. I don't want to use the term boutique. Um, the folks who are part of ISIL, who obviously from Langton to now uh, are fascinated by the history and love everything in the very ISIL way that artificial life is represented. But there mm -hmm. are other folks that are, have concerns associated with artificial life too. I think this would be sure. an interesting thing, maybe outside the remit of what we discussed initially, but potentially to reach out to IEEE and Gecko and say, hey, we've got this relatively high hit resource that we are looking to, uh, you know, maintain. 
it, it, we already promote your conferences and we already have an existing, you know, I mean, you don't need to talk about who goes there currently. It's the potential for the future, which you're trying to talk about. And I think rather than working on a, none of us have any money, none of us have any time, none of us, you know, although we're all passionate about artificial life, we've got this burden that we need to kind of pass on almost in secret to us. We, we probably mm-hmm. should open this thing up, right? We should enable it for a resource that where ISIL obviously has a component, um, I don't know, ownership or administrative discussion. But in terms of people and money, poor versus IEEE and Gecko that should have an interest in this resource being really up to snuff as well and have different, you know, different parts of the puzzle. And it was interesting talking to Anton about this because I had to describe how these three entities were distinctly different. But the then is getting more people interested in this field, right? The overlapping part of all three. Sure, sure. Actually, yeah, that's a, an interesting idea. So, w- when you're talking about these shared resources, you're t- you're talking about general introductory level information about all these subjects. Yes. It's, yes. Yeah, yeah. You promote their stuff, and you've currently promoted their stuff just for nothing. Yes. And now you're saying yes. to them, "Hey, I'm promoting your stuff, and this could be a central repository, and we have, you know, a few people that are willing to help out." But in terms of resources that you guys have that we don't necessarily have they have the resources right yeah um i'm sorry i'm not sure what we're talking about at the moment are, the are you talking about content of the, Both okay content so there's and the website in fact a variety of different things where i think there is an overlapping concern that could be represented perhaps here in reaching yes. out to at least one of yeah. the other two and say yeah. hey we've got this resource we're looking to update it and yep. if you guys can contribute either server time people, what have you, then does this just become too administrative from your perspective? I'm, I'm just wondering what concerns you might have. I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not against the idea of, of looking into that. And I, I'm not sure if you know, in recent years, there has actually been more communication between Gecko and A-Life organisers. Um, so last year, both Gecko and A-Life had their conferences in Japan, and there was uh, some degree of coordination between those, so that they were um, they were in one was Gecko was in Kyoto and A Life was in Tokyo, um, and they were one week apart. We we uh, we we had an idea of of actually having them back to back and having a, a weekend in the, in the middle where there were shared keynote speakers. So, um that didn't happen for logistical reasons but there is there's certainly uh more collaboration and and talk these days between gecko and a life and and of course i mean it's a lot of the people go to the same go to both of these conferences and and i triple e a life as well so it's not as if these are they're, they're organized distinct organizations but actually the people in those organizations uh there's a a large overlap between the three uh the three different organizations i i think there's there's a need for icel to have its own website for icel only um administrative matters uh we're actually just getting a new membership system set up and that functionality and uh, so there information about the journal and the board of directors and all of that. So I think there's 
uh, there's a need for individual websites for each of these things. But in terms of shared resources for educational material, that um, that is an interesting idea. We uh, who is it? Uh, Matthew Egbert, I think, is our is currently our education chair in ISL. I think we've talked about this quite a bit, Tim. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. My perspective is certainly my role on the ISL board. I I don't even know what really happened. I was contacted by Charles about five months after I had been removed, saying you've actually officially been removed. So, yeah, my role on the ISIL board uh, was that I just couldn't call into the meetings because of work. And I made that point to a number of folk and the meetings never changed. And I called into maybe one or two. That's unfortunate. Yes. And my view about this is that through that, when I called in, even then the software that was being used made it relatively difficult to actually maintain a solid call through it. But Anyway, uh, so I'm no longer connected. For folks listening in who may be curious, I'm no longer connected with ISIL, but I do understand actually on a two-level approach why I'm no longer connected. The first is that the journal I paid for for paper articles, they converted over to electronic articles and then refused to send me paper articles. And I was just like, okay, how can I join ISIL without joining MIT Press? And there was no means to do that. So I was maintained on the board without being a paid-for member for probably about two years through this time. So I can't complain. All these updates sound wonderful, Tim. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I just, yeah. just sorry, just to say, don't. I, I it, yes, it's very. It was unfortunate. Um, the timings of the the calls didn't work out for you. Um, we're we're now having the calls for the ISIL board meetings at um, all sorts of times. That is exactly through. what I advocated for at the time. Yes, yeah. Unfortunately, anyway. that <laughs> I hope you don't take your experience on the ISIL board. Um, I mean, it wasn't ideal that you couldn't get into the meetings, um, but everyone on the board has a fixed length term, so that's why um, I. And of course, so you should have been notified before that uh, your term came to an end. But um, yeah, everyone generally serves for, I think, so, some are two-year terms. I think it's the the appointed members are serve for two years and elected serve for four years. It's something like that. So there is a... Well, I, well my experience a, was the reverse. And are you still on the ISIL board? I am, but um, because I recently, I have been appointed... Um, for a while but then in the last elections i actually stood for election so i was elected so i'm now on it for another so four years so you year. and i had an identical relation you and i had an identical relationship to the isil board while you were maintained on the isil board without explicitly discussing to me i should have been maintained as well my i don't know what happened with my removal charles is a wonderful gentleman who's taking this thing in a really good direction i don't think it's his whatever happened happened but my view associated with this is that the questions of transparency and communication, which were the issues that I was having on the board, are also replicated beautifully in the way that I was removed or whatever happened. Um, so my view is that um, independently of this, we have we still collectively have very shared interests. And uh, I don't want to narrate this too much in a bio to podcast, but I just want to make it perfectly clear that your relationship to the board in terms of the functional purpose that you were going to do with the website and these kind of things that was maintained and my relationship to the board associated with what happens in industry that also is worthy of a podcast recording because i'm certainly fascinated to hear what happened to jeff clune and professor stanley's startup with uber and all this kind of stuff i mean 
or people independently in ISIL who were able to reach out to industry and be relatively successful initially, at least on paper. And mm-hmm. I had no community, even though I knew both of them, uh, mm-hmm. I had no communication associated with that. When they got here, I tried to meet with them repeatedly, and I've never heard from either of them since. So I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that went on through that period of time that probably could be discussed in another forum. But I have limited time with you today, and I did want to mm-hmm. talk about a few topics um, that were on my list. The I am currently delving into this notion of simulation as a service. It's something that you said you hadn't looked at for five years. But I'm interested, as, as you hear these words, mm-hmm. if you have any thoughts, any any seed that you could leave me with just to give <laughs> me some understanding of your sense of this. What I was thinking of um, some years ago, and I've still not really had the chance to uh, to do much about it in practice, is that with the with HTML5 and all the associated APIs, standardized APIs that go with it for communication and um, running on hardware accelerated, uh, so near native speeds with um, ASM, JS, and uh, all these sorts of technologies, and having more uh, sophisticated ways of having persistence through client-side databases and web workers and all of these sorts of things. I was interested in the idea of, of using the web as a, as a native environment, a distributed environment mm. where artificial organisms could live. So the, the idea would be that they weren't all living on a central server and it was just a, an online simulation which, where you could go to the web page and and um, have a look at what was happening. So some online version of um, Larry Yeager's Polyworld or something like that. Or Noble Ape. Or, or Noble Ape. <laughs> That's a brilliant example, yes. Um, the idea was that the the creatures would actually be living on the client side. Um, and when someone booted up the, or went to the, 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 um, the central web page, that would connect up um in the behind the scenes it would connect up with anyone else who happened to be connected to the website at that moment so you would get some some possibility of migrations of agents from one person's computer to a to another one um and and breeding and reproduction and all of that kind of stuff um there could be uh, yeah that you could do this for uh, there are a number of different applications, and it could be a game or it could be um, a, um, a learning algorithm. But th- I guess my interest was was from the architectural point of view. Would that even be possible or sustainable to, to have a system where you totally gave up control of, of having any central storage of, of organisms, but they were just on the client side, hopping about between different clients. What's interesting, particularly I work in a, a service-heavy environment, is uh-huh. associated with the data that needs to be transferred. So if you have an organism that's being simulated on the client, which I considered with Noble Ape because obviously it makes a lot of sense and it's based on discussions that I've at least observed you having, it is very similar to, we had this discussion associated with genotype and phenotype, uh, early mm-hmm. on when we were talking about the Evo grid being something like that before it became what Bruce Dana took it on to be. But the notion there was that the 
still, unfortunately, the bandwidth concerns associated with transmitting, like, what kind of touch do you have between the organism that's being simulated on the client and the simulation as a service behind? And also, what has changed as well in the past five years is the way, for me with Noble 8, the choice was not to have the 8 simulated on the client because the people who I wanted to maintain the client are Swift developers. Okay. <laughs> so I made the decision that it was smarter to have the simulation parts in a series of distributed services where the, the Noble Ape existed in the cloud, but potentially mm-hmm. separate from the service that was the core simulation service, and then was transmitting what we described as kind of phenotype information out to the client to render the phenotype information now, an expert user may want the mobile ape on their client. And that is also foreseeable. But you've got to think of the data interchange at the various mm. kind of points through this as being sure. the bottleneck. From my perspective, the kind of thing I was thinking about, um, you, you would be exchanging genetic information. Um, exactly. So, yeah. And it would be, so the organism would be reconstituted or regrown on when it moves to a different client. One thing I would say was when I was working at the University of York a few years ago, um, there's a guy there, Simon Hickenbotham, um, who works with Susan Stepney. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had been involved in, they had a platform called Ushare, which was a, platform as a service mm-hmm. um and he had developed some artificial life platform uh, thing on top of that so i think he called it a life zoo so the idea was that you had a, a virtualized uh environment where you could run things so he had tierra the i think the idea was it, it would be a, a a repository for simulations um so you could um you could store and also run all sorts of um a life related simulations on this platform as a service um and uh, set up experiments and download data i yeah i i don't know what really came out of that he did publish a few papers on it which um, um i can send you the details Wonderful. if you, um but um i have a feeling it's not even working anymore i, I mm. I'm not well, this, sure. <laughs> this, this is the reason that I'm perhaps somewhat naively, but at least minimizing the dependencies on new favorite languages in making a very thin client in Swift. Also right, maintaining an right. objective C client, also maintaining a Java client. Also on the simulation, the server side, the breaking up mm. of the server side, maintaining it in at least two different languages as well. The notion of an artificial life simulation as being something which is organically maintained over time always returns to these kind of little things associated with like, is it represented in one language or another language or how stable is this? What changes need to be made? Which is really mm-hmm. the only reason Noble Ape is still here is that there's been some obsessed nut who's basically rewritten it in whatever <laughs> new flavor of whatever has come out. And I think right. that increasingly going forwards is not sustainable, particularly as one encounters, you know, Wikipedia hits and wealthy comedians. So I guess my perspective on this thing is that the survivability of an artificial life simulation is a kind of meta concept that should be considered in the design elements through this. And here yeah. I'm reaching back to what I see in my workaday life as industry standards that where I know that there are at least 200 engineers that I have immediate contact with and probably 
tens of thousands of engineers in a broader community that work on this stuff that already have the language associated with at least maintaining a good portion of it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, so I, um, I wrote a review article a few years ago on, on web-based applications of artificial life. And one of the things that came out of that was that very there were there was a lot of really fancy um, applications that people have developed over the years, but almost all of them um, no longer work. I mean, well, for one reason, a lot of them were written in Java and Java applets and um, all that. But um, one example I found of something that was written, I think, in the 1990s and was still running today was um, Bill Langdon um, in London, UCL, um, had written this thing in JavaScript, um, I think it was, yes, uh, um, just using stand basic web technologies, cookies, and um, it was generate it was generating snowflakes, so mm. fractal snowflakes, um, and uh, generating them as PNG files, and um, so very simple. But that thing was still running twenty years later, or what, what, mm. something like that, and because it it used just very basic standard web mm. technology. Anything else that had used anything more sophisticated um, had tended to, to break after a few years. So I was really interested with your conversation with Anton about languages and um, yeah, JavaScript. I, I think was it Anton was saying his uh, experiences of using JavaScript to uh, to write anything complicated. And I have I, I well, I, I have similar concerns. I've never really tried it. As soon as I try writing something in JavaScript, as soon as it starts to get um, anywhere beyond a, a trivial thing, um, it starts to get very um, unmanageable. Um, the trick and... is to the trick is to break up things into trivial things. Yeah, that that is the trick. The trick is to actually think of these things really as services. Where yes. right. a very yes. specific yes. service, and thankfully, I mean, my experience working with Intel has kind of identified what atomic processing looks like when you're dealing mm -hmm. with n-core processors. I think the same is kind of true here. That what mm -hmm. you need to do, and again, you've got to be very mindful of the data that's being passed. You mm -hmm. can't have that's another thing that will slow you down. Is you can't have a lot of data being passed through these. So you then have it. It, it changes the field quite dramatically. I remember. Four years ago, when I saw a functional programming paper come in to one of the A-Life conferences, I thought this is exactly the conversation that needs to be had at this point, because this talks mm -hmm. about how you actively distribute this kind of stuff. Unfortunately, the paper was squashed by the other reviewers. But mm -hmm. this kind of conversation translates artificial life from being something that was interesting in the 1980s to being something which is contemporarily very interesting as well, because mm -hmm. it's dealing with exactly the problems that every major company here in, in you know the greater San Francisco Bay Area has partially already sold. So there's already an amazing body of work outside of the field that actually addresses a lot of this, particularly at how you cut up you know processes and data and this kind of stuff to make them efficient over uh, distributed uh, environments. And I think that is a really interesting component, which is what I was hoping your work would kind of move into as a kind of right. starting conversation yeah i see right yes yeah well i mean i i totally agree with you i i totally see the value of doing that um unfortunately i, I haven't really got there yet <laughs> i've been doing other things so um yes. i don't have a great deal of 
uh, really to, to add to that. But, but I, I, let's talk about I totally what you have understand. been doing. Let's talk about yeah. what you have been doing because I have about 10 minutes left. So I want to right, get the, right. the best Tim Taylor experience I possibly can okay. out of this conversation. You have been okay. working on a book about the early history of uh, like ideas in self-reproducing and evolving machines, which actually yes. I saw a documentary on the BBC recently about what the Rothschilds buy, you know, absolutely uber rich individuals that, you know, whether you believe it or not, might have controlled the world for large periods of time in recent history. They mm -hmm. buy these amazingly elaborate mechanical machines that do, that replicate, you know, elephants in motion and this kind of stuff. They have a collection of mechanical automata I don't right. know if it goes back to the, the 1650s, but at least goes well into the 18th century. Uh -huh. And to see these things run, I'll, I'll provide it's on YouTube. I'll provide you the link of, of, of the documentary. The mm -hmm. um, you get a sense that the uber rich might actually be there, there might actually be a connection with artificial life and the uber rich if this is the kind of stuff that they're collecting. Tell me a little bit about your book. <laughs> yeah. Uh... So, yeah, this has taken quite a long time. It's, uh, I started in, what, 2014 when I was out in Australia working with Alan Doran. And our original idea had been to write a journal paper. This is about the history of people thinking about the concept of a self-reproducing machine. Mm -hmm. So a machine that could build a copy of itself and also potentially evolve. There's a lot of very interesting stuff on automata in general, the kinds of things that uh, the Rothschilds are, are buying. <laughs> that actually has a much longer history. So, in fact, I mean, you can go back to the ancient Greeks and um, so two or three thousand years. And in fact, there are quite a few books that have come out or are about to come out on the this longer history of, of the idea of human attempts to, to build lifelike machines so jessica riskin wrote um the um the restless clock which mm. is uh quite a um comprehensive book on that and there there are various others coming out too but so what alan and i have done um is look specifically um at the idea of self-reproducing machines so not all automata in general um we started off i knew that um uh samuel butler in the 1860s, trying to get the dates right, yeah, 1860s had written um, about the idea of machines reproducing and evolving and eventually taking over the world. A few years ago at a conference, I heard Seth Bullock wrote a paper where he mentioned someone else, uh, Alfred Marshall, also in the 1860s, who had also written about the idea of a machine reproducing and, and evolving and so it was that just coming across this new reference that i'd not heard before got me interested in digging a bit deeper and seeing well uh what else is out there that um that i may not have come across before so what was originally supposed to be a journal uh paper ended up growing and growing until we decided well this is better be a book um and um yeah we so we went back to Around about the 1650s. So the, this basically happens in two stages. Um, one is the really a reaction to René Descartes' views of, of animals. Um, so he, his view was that animals could be considered as machines. They could be 
explained in purely physical terms and you didn't have to, to have recourse to to any divine um no soul whatever so in the years after Descartes introduced that idea in the 1640s ish we people started to explore that and argue against it initially and so initially there were a few references in the 1670s and 80s of of people saying well okay if you you say that an animal can be considered a machine, but I've never seen a machine produce offspring. So th- those were really the first the first instances where I found anyone alluding to the idea of a, a reproducing machine. But at that stage, it was really used to say, well, that was plainly ridiculous. So obviously, uh, animals are not just machines because a machine can never reproduce. But then we, we tracked over the um, next two centuries um you see a few more people discuss the idea of a self-reproducing machine and as time goes on it tends to get used in not it's not in the same way that people are just using it to dismiss Descartes ideas but they're as um uh, mechanization and and automata got more and more sophisticated in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, people got more used to the idea of complicated machines and and thought, well, perhaps that might not be a um, completely stupid idea that a machine could reproduce. That that was the first stage of things. But then um, the second stage uh, took off after Darwin um, published The Origin of Species in 1859. Um, so as I already mentioned, in the 1860s, there were at least two people um within a decade of of darwin's publication thinking well um yeah this idea of evolution by natural selection it's not strictly um it's not applicable solely to biological cases so the the actual logic of darwin's idea could be applied to human technology as well and so in the 1860s and 70s in fact um, I found three people who talk about this at length. So there's Samuel Butler, who's who wrote Erewhon, the, um, his fairly well-known novel, and also um, his his initial publication on this was in a newspaper in Christchurch, New Zealand, mm. where he was living as a sheep farmer. Bizarrely enough, so the uh, the first published account of robots reproducing, evolving, and taking over the world was published by a sheep farmer in New Zealand. I can explain in, why that is the case, but if you want to finish your thought, I'll, I'll come back sure, to this. Sure. Um, so there's Samuel Butler. Uh, there was Alfred Marshall, who later went on to become a famous economist, um, but in his early career was um, very much interested in philosophy of mind and wrote, it was actually a, a lecture he gave at um, uh, a, a philosophical club at Cambridge University on how you could test ideas of evolution of intelligence by building machines that could could reproduce. And also, uh, much more recently, I um, came across George Eliot, British novelist. um, Mary Ann Evans is her real name. She wrote under the pen name George Eliot. And in her last published work in 18... 79 around then it was a the book was it was called the impressions of theothrastus such was the title of the book and it was a series of conversations 
um, about various aspects of the human condition. And one of them was looking into the future of humans' relationship with machines. And again, she felt, uh, well, she explored the idea that uh, machines might eventually be able to reproduce and evolve and become um, far more intelligent than human beings. Mm. So I, I found that really fascinating that people in the 1860s and 70s were were thinking exactly the kind of things that uh, all these uh, popular AI books in the last few years, Super Intelligence, Life 3.0 and all of that, oh, yes. um, are talking <laughs> about this. But it's actually exactly the same things that people were talking about 150 years ago. Two points um, to this. It's sure. very hard to imagine what the Industrial Revolution did to the psychologies of, of people, particularly as the machines started to produce complex things. Like when they were mm-hmm. weaving, it was one thing. When they were producing other machines, which actually occurred in the 1860s to the 1880s. But the sheep shearing story, I'm periodically pitched by my family in Australia, various bits of land in Australia, and in contrast to this, I find other bits of land that are actually of more interest to me. One of these was a functioning, um, well, sheep and shearing environment, which is, looks absolutely idyllic. It's just beautiful countryside, very similar to New Zealand, having been to New Zealand as well. What happened at the time that the gentleman wrote the article was that mechanical sheep shearing finally arrived. Now, this isn't an automata that picks up the sheep and shears it. This is just a huge lumbering machine that operates automatic shears. If you'd never seen okay. anything like that, it would completely blow your mind. Because yeah. this is taking something, the art of shearing a sheep is actually remarkably difficult. It takes a certain amount of experience, otherwise you just cut up the sheep, they end up getting covered in tar, you know, as they did historically. And it is a really, you've got a moving object that is, you're trying to get something off with a relatively close cut, which historically had been done mechanically with just literally a spring and two blades that they right. would move over the sheep. Once this in, once this machine came in, which is large, noisy, but also greatly simplifies that part of the process, the movement from prior to this machine arriving to this machine arriving in obviously a bunch of thinking humans that are used to dealing with, you know, bucking sheep that they have to shear, you can tell how that becomes part of the public consciousness in a really strong way. So when you told me, oh, it was just this guy, it was, you know, <laughs> you've got to imagine the deltas yeah. between prior to the automatic sheep shearing thing turning up, or the automatic shears at least, to when the automatic shears arrive, with the view that their entire livelihoods were based on their ability to deal. And it was a, it was a, a, a moving job. It was a job for a few months of the year where they could make a reasonable living actually traveling, shearing sheep. And once this mechanical thing came in, it completely changed their relationship with their job, but also absolutely foretold that in the future, maybe some robot arms would come and spin it like a, a, a ear of corn and just shear the sheep in the future. The notion that their jobs would be taken away relatively, like, although it's, it seems ludicrous now to describe it, the delta between having to manually move the shears to having an automated machine that moved the shears for you to the sheep being sheared by a machine, these things seem relatively close together as you go from, you know, the first iteration of just manual shears to the automatic shears. So a little bit of Australian, yeah. New Zealand uh, knowledge. I, 
Absolutely, absolutely. I, and um, I said that the this this second phase was was due to Darwin. Um, of course, it, it's due to more than that. And um, yeah, it, it's really due to the confluence of Darwin's ideas of evolution on top of the climax of the of the industrial revolution so yes in fact so i i do write about that in the book uh, i should have should have said that but you picked that up anyway um it's uh, yeah absolutely this this came at a time when people were seeing machines progressively um getting more and more complicated able to do more and more stuff that had never been done by a machine before and so even before darwin the, the, I actually have a quote in the book from Benjamin Disraeli, who uh, was uh, <laughs> British Prime Minister at one point, yes. but also a novelist. And um, he wrote a book in the 1840s where there's a really nice passage in it where it's it's set in the um, Industrial Revolution landscape of Manchester. And the uh, the narrator is asking, why should, is something goes, if I can remember, it's something like... Um, why should one say that the machine does not live? It breathes, it moves, and has it not a voice? Mm. And yet the mystery of mysteries is to view machines making machines, a spectacle that fills the mind with curious and even awful speculation. <laughs> so that, that was Benjamin Disraeli in the 1840s. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, I'm just fascinated by this um, this idea that all these all these things that we think are, are very modern concerns in, in the last 10 years about super intelligent AGI and all that. Um, <laughs> people were actually thinking about it, what, 170 years ago. So, yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Tim, it has been a real pleasure to have the chance to chat today. Let us stay in contact. Let's come back into the discussion, particularly as progress is made with various ISIL-related things, because I think yeah, one of the things that I've missed about not doing this podcast is the opportunity to talk with people such as yourself. So thank you very much for the chance to chat today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Tom.